What is creativity? How can you make a living from your creative ideas? Why is listening a key when leading creative teams? And is Gen Z really the creative generation? Jeffrey Madoff, a fashion designer, film director, entrepreneur, and educator, will share his thoughts about all these topics and many more. Let's start. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking, Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. Hey podcast listeners, thanks for coming back. My name is Nir and I'm the founder of The Artian, a creative consultancy and training company that applies an art mindset in business environments. Why? I probably could go for hours why, but generally because art has a transformative power to shift mindset and develop skills. And I'm talking business skills. Check our website to learn more at www.theartian.com. Today's speaker is Jeffrey Madoff. When I heard about Jeffrey, I loved one of his mottos. I'm seduced by ideas, not money, he said. Madoff began his career as a fashion designer. He was chosen as one of the top 10 designers in the US, then switched careers to film and video production. And now, now he's working on a play that will have its world premiere in February of 2022 at People's Light Theater. As you can see, his trajectory is inspiring, interesting, and something to learn from. Hey, Jeffrey, welcome to the Artian Podcast. Thank you for having me on here. Excited about this conversation because we are going to speak about film and uh, screenplays and um, creativity and art and fashion design. And in the last 30 years, you are a film director and you edited and directed award-winning commercials, documentaries and web content around the globe. Some of your clients are the biggest brands in the world, from Ralph Lauren to Victoria's Secret, Tiffany, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, Harvard University, etc. The list goes on and on and on and on. But you have an interesting story. How did you get into film? Well, the way I got into film uh, is an interesting story. Thanks. I believe everything you do informs everything else you do. And I was, had a clothing company and was designing. And one of the companies that I bought fabric from, I dealt with the owner of the company and he said to me, do you know anything about the film business? And I said, well, I go to movies. I've read some books, but I don't really know anything about the film business. And he goes, well, look, you've got a good head on your shoulders. You're smart about business. My son has gotten involved with some people. He's your age. Would you mind just meeting him? Because he doesn't listen to me. Maybe he can hear you. And I, I'd appreciate it. I said, of course, I'd be happy to meet him. And his son was, had optioned the rights to a book called Junkie by William Burroughs, who was one of the seminal writers of what was called the Beat Generation in the 50s and early 60s. And so that was my first professional, in quotation marks, uh, experience with film. And although that project didn't really work out on a practical level, it worked out on an educational level and a career level because it exposed me 
to something that I really wanted to do, which was to tell stories and create entertainment. And that formed the bridge for me because it just opened my eyes to the possibilities of what film could do and what I could do with it. So wait, there is also an element of entrepreneurship over here. If I understood it correctly, you were a fashion designer before you even became a film director. How did you even start a business in the fashion industry? Well, I have never let my lack of knowledge get in the way of me doing things. And I'm seduced by ideas, Nir. And so I love it. When there's, when there's something that interests me, I don't think about, oh, here's all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. Uh, and I have, I've retained, even as I've gotten older, a certain naivete that if I really like it, if I'm really passionate about it, I'm also practical enough to figure out a way to make it work. So uh, I had graduated from college, went to the University of Wisconsin, and I had a double major in psychology and philosophy. And I had been on the wrestling team. So what a wonderful combination <laughs> for anything I chose to do, right? Uh, Fighting uh, your way in the business world in a poetic way. So mixing the wrestling with the philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the psychology, which I should have applied to myself too. And uh, guy that I grew up with, I don't remember not knowing him. His mother and my mother grew up together. And he had graduated from college a year before I did. And he said, look, I've saved up some money. Uh, can you think of something that would earn more than bank interest? So I said, well, I work in this clothing store, which is a little boutique. And uh, I see what we sell. So I could always draw. So I said, I'll start a clothing company. Totally ignorant of what that actually <laughs> meant. And to give you an idea of how naive and ignorant I was, when I saw fabric on the bolt in a store, I thought that was wholesale because it hadn't been made into anything yet. I really didn't know much. Uh, and there is a difference, though, between being ignorant and being stupid. Because ignorant, you can learn, which I did. Stupid's forever. Yeah. And fortunately, I was ignorant, but not stupid. So I learned really quickly because also my survival depended on it. Uh, and so I learned very fast and established what I think is critical for all entrepreneurs, which is a proof of concept. You know, I sketched some clothes. How did you do it? I'm interested. You sketched some clothes and? And so uh, some of the people that did alterations for the store, you know, I asked them if they could sew my designs. And I taught myself not how to sew or put it together, but the puzzle pieces that form a garment. I took a shirt that I really liked that fit me well, and I cut it apart along the different seam lines so I could see, oh, here's all the pieces. Here's how a shirt is made. Because I, you know, I had never paid attention to it before. And uh, I got about 10 garments made, put them into the store. Now, this boutique, I can't overstate what a little weird store it was. The owner was only a few years older than I was. We were in the base of a rooming house and behind the cash register was a shelf where the stereo, where they played actual albums, you know, this is even before CDs. And when somebody would OD in the rooming house and fall down the stairs, the arm would skip across the record <laughs> and we'd say, oh, there goes another one. And so it was quite an unusual place. I was the buyer for it, and I always found interesting and unusual stuff. So like when rock bands would come into Madison, which was often because it was a big campus, you know, the rock bands would come into the store and buy things. And, you know, we had cool stuff because I always liked things that were unique. 
And but it was a kind of store also that at checkout we also sold hash pipes and rolling papers. You know, so it's not like yes, it was this you know big store or anything. It was a little place, but it was cool, and I learned about business. How long you had this fashion company? The fashion company I had for about four years, and then you moved into film. Then I moved into film, and the transition into film was meeting these people who were doing film, who then introduced me to somebody else, and that helped me transition into film. Jeffrey, you mentioned proof of concept. What does it mean? So proof of concept is essential in any business venture that you enter into. In this case, I had uh, some of the sewers that did alterations for the store sew about a dozen of my designs, and we put them in the store. They sold out within a few hours. So I had them make them again. We sold out again. And what that told me is there were people that were actually willing to pay for what I was doing. I want to know, how is the feeling when you create something and someone buy it? It's cool. You know, it's really cool. Uh, it was funny, when I established a reputation in the fashion business, I was interviewed by one of the fashion magazines, and they said to me, what would be successful? What would you consider being successful in your fashion career? And I said, if people were able to buy my clothes years from now in vintage clothing stores. And that actually happened. A dear friend of mine, 30 years after I was out of that business, said uh, he was coming into New York from California, and he says, I've got a surprise for your wife. I said, okay, great. What is it? And he said, you'll see when I get there. He was at a vintage clothing store in Philadelphia, found one of my women's designs and bought it for my wife. He said, there you got what you wanted. 30 years later, I bought one of your garments. So that was very cool. You know, so there was, a, I had a real kick out of, you know, seeing people walking down the street wearing my stuff. Or there would be candid pictures of, of sometimes celebrities in the paper and they were wearing a shirt that I designed or whatever. It was neat. And, you know, that first time in the store when somebody wanted to buy what I had designed, it was just exciting. You know, it was cool. So, you know, I have a question for you, Jeff. You started as a fashion designer, entrepreneur, kind of going into this world. Then you switched into film, uh, working in commercial documentaries, etc., And normally I focus on the world of, of art in this podcast and you came from design into art and creativity. And I'm, I wonder, what do you think is the difference between design and art or between designer and an artist? It's an interesting question. A, a designer is doing something that is addressing a specific concern or a specific product, whether you're designing a car or a chair, you're designing a specific thing for a specific use. So that's what a designer is, where an artist is creating an expression, and that expression doesn't have the same boundaries, it doesn't have to be practical, it's not against a specific task. So as a, an artist, you have a bigger world to deal with in terms of your expression, whereas a designer, let's call it, it's an applied art because it's having to address a specific concern or specific problem or challenge. Yeah, I always say that for me, design is about problem solving and art is about problem formulating. 
artists ask the questions and designers solve those questions. And I like the way that you added the layer of expression and needs or uh, not necessarily a practical uh, need. And another thing that I think it's kind of maybe basis for both of them is the aspect of creativity. And you deal a lot with the creativity. And before we will discuss creativity and what you do, I'm interested to hear what is creativity for you? For me, creativity is the compelling need to express and bring about some kind of change, whether it's a change in how you look at things, a change in how you feel, uh, a change in terms of adding something to the world through expression. I think that anyone who is creative is trying to bring about some kind of change because if you're not trying to bring about some kind of change, you don't need to create anything because the stuff already exists. <laughs> so creativity implies you're trying to bring something new into the world. Yeah, I love it. Creativity is about change. It's a different uh, kind of perspective. So you mentioned that some people, uh, creatives, they want to do something in the world, change something in the world, they create it. And I'm interested to hear from your experience. Do you think that creativity can be taught? I think that creativity can be encouraged. And I think that, you know, one of the things that happens when we're quite young is we learn shame and that your personal expression is oftentimes not encouraged. And, you know, it's much easier, whether you're a parent or a teacher, to try to keep things very kind of organized, if you will. This is acceptable. This is not acceptable. And I was really lucky because my parents very much encouraged me to be creative, whether reading the stories that I wrote or bringing stuff. They had a store and they'd bring home craft paper, you know, that they'd wrap packages in. So I had great big pieces of paper that I could draw on and do anything I wanted. So they really encouraged it. And I think that encouraging creativity means, uh, and it's very much like being a director, is the main job that you have is to make the talent feel safe. So as a parent, I want my kids to feel safe so that they can express. If you're a director and you're directing talent, you want them to feel safe so they can express and not fall back on the things that they already feel safe doing because you won't get anything special out of it in terms of their performance. So I think that you can encourage creativity and there's a fine line between encouraging and teaching it. But I think that the encouragement of creativity can lead to the ability to learn or relearn how to be creative and to recapture that lack of fear you had when you were a kid that may have been stomped out by your parents, may have been stomped out by your peers, may have been stomped out by early teachers. And people avoid things that they find shameful and they don't want to be humiliated or embarrassed in front of others, which means you're at risk when you put out a new idea. And so it takes a, a particular kind of person that can go up against those odds and not let that stop them. So wait, I have over here a question. How do you overcome this fear? Well, I'm fortunate that this, despite my young experience or my young uh, appearance, <laughs> I'm not a kid anymore. I think it's because I was encouraged from the time I was very young to do that. So it wasn't uh, about some looming threat. It was more about put it out there and see what happens. 
I also learned from my parents how to stand up for myself. So, you know, if people would try, you know, I had, I had an art teacher back in when I was in third or fourth grade, Mrs. Turney. I don't think you knew her. (laughs) (laughs) And we were doing what was called crayon resist, you know, crayons had wax in them. And so you would do watercolor over where crayon was and where the crayon was, it wouldn't take the color. And it always looked like crap. They weren't interesting projects at all to do. I was drawing a lot of stuff. So she came over to me and looked at what I was doing. She said, you're not doing the crayon resist. And so I already did it. There's that. She said, but there's more time. You could do more. And I said, but this is art class. I'm doing my art now. And she said, you'll do what I tell you to do, or you'll sit there with your hands folded, young man. So I sat there with my hands folded and uh, did not do what she wanted me to do because I thought it was a waste of time. I had done it. She saw that I could do it. I wasn't willing to do any more of it. And I'm thinking, it's, this is art class. Why don't you let me do what I'm doing? What difference does it make? You know, but it was oftentimes what happens, I think, with people in authority is they're more concerned with managing and exercising authority rather than creating a free space for expression. Totally. And you just, you know, you just opened the road for me to ask you the next question, because what you describe now, it's a, basically the same situation I can see also in the business world. People that exercising authority, uh, you do what I tell you, don't ask questions, basically treating us like we are in the third or fourth grade. And one of the things that I do see is that there is kind of ambivalent, I would say, attitude toward creativity in the business world. You hear business managers standing on stages, we need creativity, we need creative people, we want creative talent, etc., 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 But, you know, I kind of have my own reservation about it, that yes, they want creativity, but mm, not really. Because, you know, creativity kind of imply working maybe, okay? And I think it's kind of maybe a misconception, working with no order, lack of focus, artists that come in and spreading colors on the corporate walls. And when you think about creative people, It's basically people that it's difficult to manage them. What do you think about that? I mean, how the business world actually can understand better creative thinkers and actually work with them better? Well, I mean, that's a really interesting question, Nir, and there's a lot to unpack from that. And I think that one of the things that's really important is to understand the circumstances you're in when you're working for other people. And, you know, I look at Stanislavski, who was the great acting teacher. And in defining who your character was that you were portraying, you had to understand given circumstances. Okay, so if you're playing Superman, then part of the given circumstances is you can jump out of the 30th floor window and fly. But if you're playing a normal person, if you jump out the window, you're going to be dead. (laughs) So, So the given circumstances often defines behavior. Well, one of the things that you have to understand in the given circumstances of any business environment is that it costs them money to innovate. It costs them money to go outside the grid and the lines because it's not proven. So although there's a lot of lip service being given to innovation, even though time and time again, the companies that innovate often demonstrate that they can be very profitable because they're offering something new and giving people a reason to buy. 
But you have to understand as an employee in one of those companies, and this also applies if you're trying to raise money for your own company, they've got to see it in the context that there's going to be a return on it, you know, because ultimately it's a business, right? So, uh, so I think that that's where the real conflict comes in in business in two areas. One is creativity or innovation costs them more. And because it hasn't been done before or hasn't been proven, it puts them at greater risk. No businesses like things that cost them more and place them at greater risk. You know, that's just not what they like. And there are companies that do innovation and are hired for their innovation. And, you know, and they're strictly, though, about problem solving. But they do it brilliantly in terms of how they come up with these solutions. But they're also being hired by companies that recognize the need to do something very different. So I think it's important to understand that you, every time you're being creative in a business setting, you're introducing risk. And by the way, just to add this as a footnote, because it might open up some other interesting areas, that it's like when I saw that, you know, Amazon uh, is just bought MGM, that part of what they get with MGM is the James Bond franchise, right? So when they did the James Bond movies and Sean Connery being the first James Bond, He's an actor and he is a very good actor and he didn't want to just do James Bond. And as a matter of fact, when he was not on camera, he didn't even want to wear the toupee because his hair had thinned out when he was young. And so he'd go on talk shows and you'd see that he was bald and uh, still, I mean, an incredibly handsome man. But the point to all that was, is that they wanted to try to keep him in that James Bond box. And... He took risks with his career by doing parts that weren't action hero James Bondish, but some very strong, wonderful, dramatic parts. And he ran the risk of not working, but he took the creative risk and he delivered on it. So it also happens in those kinds of creative fields all the time, too. That's why there's what's called typecasting. And typecasting happens in business, too, which is they expect you to do things in a certain way just like they expect actors to play a certain kind of part. And I think that breaking out of that box is very liberating, but it ta- it's hard. Yeah, no, I really love this uh, metaphor or the story that you mentioned about uh, James Bond and how to get outside of your character to be someone else. And often that's exactly what happened in an organization that you have probably the front desk assistant that he can be or she can be a great community builder, but nobody gives them the opportunity to do it in the business because they are just the front desk assistant. It's very interesting. And one of the questions that I have as a follow-up, as a film director, you work quite often with very creative people. What is the, I would say, the things that help you manage them better or get the output you are looking for? How do you bring them together? Because, you know, creativity, often everyone has their own idea and they want to do it their way, etc. As a film director, you are the not only the kind of conducting and directing all this big group of people toward a creative vision. What are the things that work for you when you do it? There's a one word answer to that. Listen, if you have hired those people to work with you on a project listen to their input. And so listening is essential to a successful collaboration. And a successful collaboration is what you need to realize a project, whether it's a film or 
you know, I'm in, in the thick of what you're talking about right now with my play. And so it's, first of all, hiring the best talents, not only based on their work, but it also has to be a personality that you can work with. I was hiring a cinematographer, this is some years ago, and one of the cinematographers whose work I had tremendous respect for was Vilmos Zygmunt. Vilmos Zygmunt was nominated for more Academy Awards than any cinematographer. He did, he did Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He did Deliverance. He did McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He was an amazing cinematographer. And I called one of the camera rental places because I knew they had worked with him. And I said, what kind of guy is Vilmos? And they said, he's a fucking legend. Why are you asking what kind of person he is? And I said, because if he's an asshole, I'll hire a legend who isn't. Because I never want to be around people that rob the joy of the process. In the work that I do in playwriting or doing some of the film stuff that I do, creating a fantasy, that's an incredible privilege to be able to exercise your creativity and be paid for it. So I don't want anybody to ever rob the joy of that process. And part of what makes that process joyous is working with other talented people who can help execute a vision. You know, so I'm working with a set designer on my play, David Gallo, who's a multiple Tony Award and Emmy Award. I would be an absolute fool not to listen to how the story resonated with him and how he visualizes the physical space that that story is going to live in on stage. Same thing in, in film. And so you listen to people, you respect their ideas. Doesn't mean that you accept them necessarily, but everybody needs to feel heard and understood. And I know as a creative person, that's important to me. And I have to assume that's important to every other creative person who is contributing to that job. So setting up a sense of community where people feel heard is critical. And then you find that you don't have as much to manage in terms of the personality because everyone is emotionally invested in putting the best piece of entertainment in front of that audience in the case of the play. And it was an absolute joy working with these people. And, and one of the things when I say robbing the joy of the process is people who are so concerned with their own authority and having the iron hand and doing those kinds of things, they have issues that I wish they would work out in therapy, not on set. It's kind of, it requires a lot of humility, I think, and kind of eliminating ego in order to be able to step into this process as you just described. You know, but to me, it's about how do, we're all working together. How do we make the best, whatever that is, whether you're designing a car, whether you're doing a play, whatever it is, when there's different people who are contributing different aspects to that enterprise, It's just about giving them the respect to listen to their ideas. And you can intelligently and respectfully disagree. But, you know, uh, I think that if your ego is so tenuous that anybody offering up something that you can't put your thumbprints on and stamp, you're going to kill that process. And so I think that that process is way more productive And you're going to end up with a better piece because you all agree with what the goal is. And so I seek from day one, I bring everybody together, welcome them and talk to them about, you know, how we'll work together on this. And then I actually do that. I don't believe in giving lip service to it. I believe in actually doing it. And the reason is it makes the final product better. Even as a business person, I would be foolish to 
not give that credence to the people I'm working with. No, I like it. I mean, it's not only that you set the vision, you also kind of discuss it with them how to get there. And everyone can also contribute their own their own input into this process. Jeff, you have an entrepreneurial background and you started companies and then, you know, even I think film production is by itself having a film, it's, it's an entrepreneurial venture. But in previous conversations we had, you mentioned that pursuit of money should not be the goal. What do you mean by that? What I think I said wasn't that it shouldn't be the goal. I said that it was not my primary goal because I'm seduced by ideas. I'm not telling anybody what their goal should be. But to me, <clears throat> you know, my goal is to have fun and be fulfilled by what I do and figure out how to get paid for that because, you know, I live in New York City. I have a wife and two kids. There's expenses. I just can't be, oh, this would be great. You know, I, I have overhead. I have overhead as a business person and then there's your family overhead and everything else. To me, if you do what you do well and if you are successful in getting it out in the marketplace and it's validated by selling, proof of concept, what we talked about and so on, you will make money. But if your pursuit is how can I do the next thing that's going to make money, then, you know, go into a hedge fund, you know, invest in the stock market and work in those areas. But I think if you're trying to do a creative pursuit and your primary goal is making money, I think that's going to be a lot harder to achieve. But if you do something, you know, Steven Spielberg, when he made Jaws, which had a lot of challenges in terms of doing it, he rose to the creative challenges and the storytelling excellence that he has, and he's made a fortune. And I'm willing to bet that even at the beginning of his career, it's not how can I make a fortune? It's how can I make this successful enough that I get to do it again because I love doing it. And that is kind of the path for me is I hope to do another play and another play. When doing the film stuff, I'm looking what's going to be the next job. You know, so doing it well and profiting from it creates new kinds of opportunities. So to me, it's those opportunities will produce money. It's a byproduct. But if that's the only thing that you're after, I think you're also going to do not very interesting work. So one of the things that also I would assume, because you're doing it for a long time, bring you joy is also teaching. You are a faculty member at the Parsons School of Design in New York, one of the leading, I think, design school in the US, teaching a course you developed and you called it Creativity, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Can you tell me about this course? First of all, why you decided to develop this course? Second of all, what is this course? <laughs> you sound like my mother. Uh, <laughs> so what are you doing that for? Why are you doing that? <laughs> uh, so I have a, a visual aid here because this was a, an offshoot of the course, which is, it's called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. So for the, the listeners that don't see the video yet, Jeffrey just showed me his book that is based on this course. And we will make sure to add the link to the book in the show notes. So go and check it. So I was approached by a guy after I was uh, directing a Ralph Lauren fashion show many years ago. And he said, uh, I'm Dean Stadel and I'm at uh, Parsons School of Design. I said, oh, you're the dean? And he said, well, no, 
I mean, I'm Dean, but I'm not the Dean. <laughs> Dean's my first name, like Dean Martin, you know? <laughs> so it was kind of funny that he went into academics with the first name Dean. Uh, and he said, you know, what you're doing is really interesting. I'd love to have you come and speak to my class. Would you be willing to do that? I said, sure. So I did. I had fun doing it. And I got invited back every semester for like three or four years. And then he said to me, there's an opening for a teaching position. I think that you should go after it. And I said, well, you know, I don't know that I can because I get a phone call. I may be off to Paris or London or some Los Angeles, whatever. And I can't turn down these jobs. And he said, well, I'm sure the school would work with you. Try it for a third of a semester. And so what happened was I was, uh, I didn't realize it at the time that they were actually trying out three of us for this teaching position. I got offered the position and gave them the same concern before I accepted. And they said they'd work with me. Well, it's now 14 years later and I love it. And sort of like you, I bring in different guests that I think will, will bring some value to the students and challenge their thinking or open them up to new ideas or whatever. And it gives me great license to approach anybody I think is interesting in doing something interesting and talking to the students and sharing those ideas with them. I love doing it because I'm always learning along with the students. And I've, you know, interviewed Nobel Prize winners and best-selling authors and actors and designers and all kinds of people who make a living with their ideas and their creativity. So it, it's great fun. And I, my guess is that I get some of the same satisfaction fulfillment that you get from the guests that you invite and who you get to talk to. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I think one of the biggest benefits of having this podcast is to speak uh, with people like you from all around the world. They're doing creative stuff, doing interesting stuff, doing things that I think has value. And for me, yeah, it's opened uh, my eyes to see creativity and art because that's my angle uh, from very different aspects and kind of strengthen my belief why having artists and creative thinkers in the realm of business and technology is so important, not only when it comes to innovation, also posing hard questions for us to ask as a society, which I think is very, very important. And there is something that I'm interested in because, you know, um, Jeff, I'm also teaching. And one of the things that I like about teaching is meeting these fresh minds. And I'm interested, what surprised you the most from listening to all these uh, speakers or what surprised you the most about your students? Because you're already doing it 14 years. Basically, they grew up into the social media era and you saw it. I don't know if anything surprised me, uh, but I found things interesting because I have students from all over the world. It's a very international class. And if anything, it reinforces the idea that I believe since I've traveled all over, which is fundamentally people are people. And, you know, we're all after the same kinds of things. And I think that's kind of the human experience. So there are always students that are standouts. There's always a core group of students that are really good. There's uh, certainly an equal number that sleepwalk through college and will probably sleepwalk through life. 
And then there are the others that, you know, they've got to somehow feel safe enough to engage and take part. So for me, the ongoing challenge is to create that safe space creatively that's fun and challenging because I also, a big part of what I teach is critical thinking. Don't accept ideas and things on face value. You need to think and you need to think critically. If you believe something is true, why do you believe it and be prepared to support it? Don't just mouth things that you don't really know, which is one of the big problems with social media is you can find whatever truth you're looking for, but there's only one truth for certain things. And so you need to vet for truth and find it out. So I think there's a, there's a huge challenge in terms of why people believe what they believe. And critical thinking is so important in terms of understanding how you get to the core issues and, and seek the truth. And I think when you're creative, you're always seeking a particular kind of truth and a particular kind of expression. But I don't have, there hasn't been anything that has surprised me. It's this just constant unfolding of experience and, and what happens. And where sometimes somebody lights up in class who hasn't spoken for a while. And I don't wait for the students to raise their hands. You know, I'll say, oh, Nir, you know, we haven't heard from you in a bit. How do, how do you feel about this? Because I want them to find their voice. That's part of my goal for them is to help them express and not feel afraid or reluctant to do so. And I have a question. I also contemplate with this question quite often. As you know, we are kind of living, especially these this recent years, in the job market. You have the boomers, you have uh, Gen uh, X, you have millennials, you have Gen Z. And one of the things that keep coming back is that the younger generation, especially Gen Z, are more creative or tend to be more related to creativity. Now, you obviously, you teach in a design school that I think by nature, it's people that are interested in this theme. But I wonder what is your perspective on that? Do you feel that there are differences between the generations when it comes to the application of creativity in the ideas that they do, the project that they bring or something like that? No, I don't. Uh, and what I strongly believe, well, first of all, do you know the genesis of boomers, Gen Z, millennials, all that, you know where that comes from? It's a marketing construct. And there is really no such thing. I mean, it's a, it's a definition of this particular spread of years that you're defined as a baby boomer or millennial or whatever. <clears throat> but it's not like there's science behind. It's just an arbitrary chunk of time that these people fit in. And the reason that they fit into that and the reason that it's cited the Gen Zs or this or that is what the economic power they have or will have as they get older. So who's the biggest market out there? And, you know, it's not, there aren't psychological considerations that I've ever seen or any compelling evidence that separates them. There are people in all these different generations that are compelled to create, do new kinds of work. There are people in all those generations who are just looking for a stable job and, you know, are opting for security. And I'm a, from the baby boomer generation and, you know, we were going to change the world 
And there were some things that were lit and some things that weren't because, you know, some of the worst people are also of my generation. But as I say to my kids, when you get older, you can fuck up the world too. You know, so it's not, I don't see it as anything that's exclusive to a particular group in terms of behaviors. I don't think they're more creative. I don't think they're more insightful. I think that each one of those groups has people that are insightful, has people that are creative, has people that are dumb as stones, have people that don't apply themselves, have people that, you know, all these different categories. So I think there's tremendous overlap in those. Great. So we are getting to the end of uh, the podcast, and I think you kind of laid the ground for my last question. Let's assume we have a baby boomer, a Gen Z or X or millennial or whatever we want to call them that is listening to us now and want to unlock their creativity. But, you know, they kind of afraid uh, they cannot attend your uh, course. What is the one thing that you can recommend doing? I think that the most important character trait to have is curiosity that you want to understand what's going on and why is it going on. And so you should go to movies, read books, go to conferences, talk to people who you've never talked to before who have ideas that are different from yours. Expose yourself to theater, to music, go down some rabbit holes on online and do research into things and see what that opens up and constantly be feeding your brain because your brain, even though it's not formally a muscle, it does get flaccid if you don't use it. And so use it and engage by being curious. And uh, the more curious you are and the more inputs you have, the more your neural firings can link up things in unique ways because you have more dots to connect. Jeffrey, thank you very much. I really like uh, the conversation. I think there are many insights over here from trial and error to feeling safe to uh, curiosity. I think it's such an important characteristics or attitude or skill. I don't know how to define it that someone need to have, uh, but I definitely uh, can relate to that. And I always say that for me, you know, the thing that I like to do the most is reading books. The thing that I like, I hate the most is reading books because every time I read a book, I discover another 10 books that I need to read. And then I ended, I end up like just looking forward to have full years just to reading those books. Jeffrey Madoff, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Total pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you this morning. Great. Go check the show notes. We will add the links to a Jeffrey website, to the book, so you can see more and see you on the next episode of the RTM podcast. Thank you. After listening to Jeffrey, can we all agree that he has been working very hard to make his passion a source of living? Living a creative life is very fulfilling and I wish many of us could live it. So what is your creative passion? Did you think to pursue it? Are you pursuing it already? Please share with us your thoughts on the media. A quick thank you to Dove Baron, one of our previous guests earlier this season who connected Jeffrey and me. Until next time, be creative or encourage someone to be one. Your kid, your friend, your spouse. 
As Jeffrey mentioned, we need someone to enable us to fulfill our creative potential. Have a wonderful week. I will be waiting for you here with another episode of the Artian Podcast. With me, Nir Hindi. So far, we are producing our podcast without any help. So if you find this podcast valuable, I will be super grateful if you can help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review. It will take you less than a minute and it really, really helps. Special thanks to Daniel Duran who mixed and mastered this episode. If you're interested in working with us and upskilling your team's capabilities, especially in areas of creativity and original thinking, then I would recommend you to check our workshops and training all available on our website. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Teacher, or wherever you get your podcast. All our previous shows are available on our website, www.dartian.com slash podcast. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us directly via email at podcast at Once again, thanks for listening.